Welcome to Wait Long by the River. We've got a fantastic guest this show, circus impresario Tom Davis. He's toured internationally with Circus Oz and he runs his own troupe, Long Answers to Simple Questions. This show, we cover having to commit to fail, cultural cringe, what really made Leotard's name, uh, Icarian games, taking risks, not taking money, death, reviews, grants, gluttony, inspiration, and how not to act when you're acting. Look us up and let us know what you think of the show on iTunes, Facebook, Twitter. Uh, and make sure to come to one of our live shows first Wednesday of every month at Some Velvet Morning in Clifton Hill. They're like, if you're buying a parrot, you're looking after that for 80 years, at least. Yeah, that's a huge decision for an adult to make, let alone a kid. Yeah. On the other hand, the only person who's in a position to really make that decision is a kid. That's right. Because everybody else isn't going to be able to live it's up like, to it. like, all right, but if you don't teach it swear words, I'll be disappointed. Maybe we need some sort of parrot setup where parrot breeders breed them to the age of 18 or so and then mm. match them up with precocious 18 to 20 year olds. Nice. And that way they're like life partners. That's such a great idea. Uh, well, that's as good a place to start as any. Welcome to Wait Long by the River, the podcast where we spend all weekend looking up things on Wikipedia and inevitably come up against something that we wish we hadn't learned. In this case, it's the fact that the real noise that a fox makes is the sound of a screaming middle-aged woman or just woman just in woman. general? Yeah. yeah. Just a female scream. It's just a very scary noise. Okay. Because they, they sound very distressed. Speaking of which, I was just hearing about a job that you can get at Melbourne Theatre, the Arts Centre, I suppose it's called. Melbourne Theatre Company was hiring... People who can describe what's going on on stage during a play to blind, to the blind viewers. That's really cool. Yeah, it sounds awesome. And knowing the play well enough and knowing uh, the, sh the vocabulary of theatre well enough that you can describe in the gaps without getting in the way of somebody's enjoyment of the performance. Well, yeah, that's great. And as long as you're not interrupting the dialogue. If Yeah, I suppose you're the supertext subtitles of live theatre. Mm. And that's really great too because there's nothing... Like, sight is... I don't know, it's one of the... It's a, it's actually a smaller part of theatre than I think we think because so much of theatre is atmosphere and the, that intense nature of being in a crowd full of people and watching this amazing thing take place, whatever it is, or tedious thing take place, hopefully it's good. Yeah. Um, yeah, so having just someone just go, all right, they're, they're moving left and he's like, oh, he's drawn a knife and then letting the dialogue play, I think yeah. would be really cool. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's the form that theatre takes originally, right, when someone writes it out. I mean, it originally takes the form of a picture in somebody's brain. Like and that's right, yeah, yeah, working script. Yeah, the working script is all just dialogue. So presumably you could sit there and mm. you could read just what was in the square brackets. Yeah. And that was sort of... Is that how they do it or is it capitals in little... I, I don't know. I think um, when I write stuff for circus, it's I'm not a script writer, so I just kind of mash a physical script together with an idea or with a theme and just go, uh, music here, but I don't have to write interior day, someone draws a knife and it's lying by the windowsill, that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, although that sounds like a good beginning to a circus performance. I'm always workshopping ideas with people and that always give good suggestions. You know how everyone's got a suggestion for something you do, but I love them. Everyone who pitches something to me, I'm like, that's amazing and I always wish I write them down. Yeah, so are you going to start carrying around a notepad or... Do you think the things that stick in your head are the ones that are worth doing in future? If, yeah, if it's an idea that I think is really electric, because obviously some of those ideas are great but implausible. But yeah, I kind of pull out my phone and send a text to myself so that it's there right. and unread, so I always have a message that I need to read when I get home. Yeah. yeah. I was listening to a podcast with a comedian who was saying he put his own number in his phone, but as 
uh, comedic muse or something similar. And every time he went out like a comedy festival, they'd do their shows and then they'd all get drunk till five in the morning. And all night he'd be coming up with gags or one-liners or just little ideas. And he'd text them to himself and he'd never check his phone. And so he'd wake up in the morning bleary-eyed and open his phone and there'd be 12 messages from comedic muse. Yeah, that's genius. Yeah, that is really, actually genius. It's a really great idea. So I really want to talk about your approach to audience participation, but first we should probably talk about who you are. Yeah, well, because, hi, everyone. Yeah, hi, everyone. Uh, I'd like to introduce Tom Davis. Excellent. The show. It's, it's been really difficult for the people who, because half the shows I do are with musicians, and that's pretty straightforward. Here's a great muso. They're in this, more or less, this genre. Or as Mandy Connell described, she said, if her genre was an ethnicity, like if folk was an ethnicity, she'd be folk. That's how she'd self-identify. But non-musicians... It's a good way of looking at it, actually. No one's been... I can't peg anyone. Like, Sarah Kaur was dancer and video artist and choreographer and graphic designer and... Oh, Sarah does everything, though. She's tremendous. And just even that truck, the camera obscura that she makes. Yeah, right? Which is so... Such a fascinating thing, and I suggest people Google it right away. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Max Barker was... I mean, it's a, I know it's a long podcast, but it's a, there's a 10-minute section or an 8-minute section where we're talking about how to describe him for the podcast. And that's right, yeah. yeah. I remember here listening to that and being so fascinated by how much Max had done and kind of knowing that about him, but that was the best thing about it was the fleshing out the details and seeing that's why he's just so kind of capable, calm and talented. It's, he's, mm-hmm. he's the guy who chucks something. He's just like, oh, I reckon I can give that a crack. And, and I really respected that. And I thought it was a really, really interesting ethos to live by, to go... Allow yourself to be terrible and learn. And that's something that's really interesting me as a circus trainer because I'm trying to be a performer, but I also teach to make money. And if I'm going to do it, I want to do it well. And mm-hmm. so the, the biggest thing that's really getting out of me as circus is that you have to, like genuinely have to commit to being awful at what you do until it makes sense. Um, yep. A juggler who refuses to drop is somebody who's unlikely to even let go of the ball. And you can see that, like the subconscious between someone who's happy to fail and someone who's not. Um, yeah, really like more uptight kids who, or adults who've been used to achieving, mm. they often make terrible jugglers. But they yeah. are committed jugglers, so they'll get there eventually. I think that that's my problem with juggling. I think that you've just diagnosed my inability after years and years. I must have bought five or six different sets of balls and yeah, kept right. them at work and kept them at home. I used to have some in the yard where we are now background noise with birds and stuff yeah yeah i think it's the fear of stuffing it up that's right but it's got to happen and juggling it has to happen thousands of times you'll never be a flawless juggler and the the kind of people who are the you know anthony gattos and that kind of stuff um from what i hear they led really disciplinarian lives that were hopefully fun like i don't know and i'm not going to speak for them and i'm certainly not going to disparage famous jugglers name like you know names on this but (laughs) but you know i got the impression that they they lived kind of under the thumb and had to mm-hmm. work really, really hard to be as great as they are. That's a huge question about athletes, though, or, yeah. or great musicians or anybody who was brought up to be a success. Mm. I mean, Michael Jackson is the giant pitfall. That's right. You know, what's our expectation of how good someone has to be and, and what sacrifices are we letting somebody else make on behalf of another to let that happen? Yeah. And Michael Jackson is a good example and all these like, you know, um, amazing, you know, circus performers from the Moscow Circus and the Great China Circus and all that kind of thing who worked so hard as kids to get to where they are. And you've got to wonder, you know, is, do we want someone to be that good? And Jackie Chan is another example. You know, he's yeah. really, he talks about in his autobiography how proud he is that, that new laws have come in restricting the way Chinese opera uh, trainers treat them and circus and that kind of thing and, you know, you know child labour laws and performing mm. laws and he says but the flip side is they'll never be as good as I am 
and that's what he said. He goes, wow. you know, our like Samo Hung and um, Jet Lee is Jet Lee? No, it's um, Yuan Bao and and him. Yeah, are just these you know amazing acrobats and performers and yep. stuntmen and actors and singers. Like they can do all of it, and you know they they were trained like way too hard, way way too unacceptably. And does that show not just in their the level of their ability, but in the nature of their performance? Because I know that Jackie Chan, one of the things I've always loved ever since I was a kid was the outtakes at the end where he's yeah. just getting slaughtered. He's totally. just smacking his head, bumping into things, and he always just leaps to his feet with a big smile on his face. Or if he doesn't, you know it was really genuinely bad. Mm. That, even if somebody was a prodigy and was brought up with these new laws in place and had the level of talent he has, it would still have a different uh, aesthetic to it. It would still have a different yeah, that's flavor right. to it. Yeah, absolutely. So do you, as a circus trainer and performer, uh, do you notice that tendency in certain people and is it a promising tendency or is it something, is it a warning sign if somebody's self, not self-destructive but uh, not afraid for their own physical well-being? Oh, that is actually a really great question, but it's also a really mixed bag. And there's some people who are those prodigies. I grew up with one in Warehouse Circus, a guy called Louis West, who is absurdly talented. He came up as this kind of plucky little upstart kid with his two mates and they unfortunately kind of got more and more distracted because they were talented too, but, you know, they were teenagers who wanted to be more teenager, yeah. I think. And he was, he hit a spark. We did a show with him in Parliament House actually. Um, cool. Which is really funny because while we were doing it, I was bunny hopping over him, I think, or or L or somebody on a unicycle and Bob Brown walked past in the corridor, watched us and walked straight into a light fixture. And I felt <laughs> awful because I was like, oh, I really like Bob Brown. It was only Can a couple months later Tucky that he retired here? as leader of the Greens Party. No, was, thankfully like a decade <laughs> later. So yeah, I felt so like, oh, not him. Cool <laughs> people. Out. Um, yeah, but he kind of just suddenly shone. And I don't know if that was that moment, but for me, it was watching that moment. I saw this spark go off and he was off like he didn't stop training he outstripped all of us who'd been doing circus for like six years in a year and a half went to nike outstripped all the kids that he was there with and then you know that's a talented year they're all really good and what's went, nike uh the national institute of circus arts that's why oh. i moved to melbourne it's a three-year degree course uh in circus Great. And, it's, you know, it's got its flaws, but it's generally a pretty great place. It's getting more expensive now as the subsidies get less and less. And yep. so it's becoming a thing where you kind of go, well, is it worth going there or do you need to just pay for a trainer privately and get the same amount? But that requires discipline. I digress. I'll do Louis it a lot. Um, yeah, so Louis West is then joined Circa, this Brisbane circus company that makes really fascinating and interesting work. And a lot of it's quite similar each show, but that's because their design structure, like the way they create work, kind of comes through this one person and then he utilises these acrobat bodies and their creativity to work within rules he sets. So shows have a similar flavour, but they're all interesting. And he was offered Cirque du Soleil, Cirque was all these amazing worldwide companies. I went, no, I'd rather stay here. And really? Yeah, he's just this just incredible acrobat and really talented. And the worst part is he's also charming, nice, and incredibly well-read and intelligent. Oh, that's the worst, isn't it? I met a guy like yeah. that last night and he just kept coming out with achievements of his just in conversation. Yeah, that's you right. You just wanted to feel negatively disposed towards him, being Australian and having a tall puppy. That's right, yeah, that yeah, that, that thing we have. But not totally lovable. Mm. Yeah. Louis is the same thing, yeah. He's out-read me, out-circus me, and, like, 
I swear he outnices me, and I just think he's the best. That's an achievement. It is pretty well. Oh, shucks. Yeah. But yeah, he's great. And I should probably stop gushing about him on a podcast, but I thought, yeah, he's just such an interesting answer to your question, which is that there are those people who are obsessed, and that's the positive. I see Louis West worked really hard. He lived quite cheaply, and he's good at saving money while he did it. Like, he worked very hard, and he would train all day and then read at night and... He'd go out with friends, but he wouldn't spend much or do much is the impression I got from yeah. him at Nike because he was a couple of years above me. Yeah, and then there's other people you saw at Nike, which is a great example of a really high-stress environment like all performance schools mm-hmm. uh, where people... It's, it's still up to you to bring your dedication. So I went in as a kind of, not jaded, but more, more calm and slightly older than the median age of the kids there. And so I knew what I wanted out of it and I knew what my limits were. And I, I pushed beyond those, I think. I think that really helped. But I could have worked a lot harder. And I saw people who were so dedicated and so hardcore. And some of it was really positive, mm-hmm. And they're all working. And some of it was very, like, you know, mental illness and starving yourself, that sort of thing, really unhealthy wow. outcomes, which is a shame. And because they were all great. Like, there's, it's pretty rare that you'd meet someone in that school that was a, like, genuinely awful person. And I'd say that's actually never happened. The circus school fit that trope of the artist's generally being predisposed towards mental illness or people with mental illness getting drawn to the arts. Yeah, Do you see much know. of that? Circus is, again, a weird mix because mm-hmm. it'll it'll attract a jock acrobat, like a jock, mm-hmm. you know, physical performer as much yep. as it'll get the weird outcast kid. And I'm definitely in the latter camp. Like yep. me and all the, all the youth circus kids who came to Nika definitely fell into that thing where, you know, something's going on with them, whether it's nature or nurture and they've drawn to circus or circus has brought out that quirkiness in them Mm. and it definitely brings out the quirky in people like and there's this kind of affected love in in circus performers of wanting to be the the weirdos you know yeah i mean you're drawn you're sort of pressured to be an extrovert that's right in your own unique way because you've got to stand out from a crowd of people yeah especially because it's almost always an ensemble performance right that's right it's very rare that you have just a solo yeah well yeah i mean we can talk about so many different areas where we're going it's on Um, me (laughs) yeah well that's the thing. I think there are trim- like plenty of people who stay really calm and true to themselves in circus, and I think those people, for me, are the standouts. They're the performers I really want to see because if they're that honest about themselves, the honesty will come out on stage. Mm-hmm. And like any theatre, you want to see something that means something to somebody. It's like music as well, you know. The most incredibly intricate music can be totally lifeless and dead, and the, the roughest punk can be the most vibrant thing you've ever heard because yeah. it's all about the emotion of the person playing it. Yeah, and that's where that pressure for reinvention comes from, right? You, if you're mm. the top of your craft in an area and you make 10 albums of the same stuff, you're yeah. excoriated for it. It's not uh, something to, it's not really as much of an achievement each time. There's diminishing returns. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I presume that happens in the circus world. I mean, do you get one guy who's just the world's best axe juggler, but once he's done it for three years, people are like, oh, yeah, well, axy. He's not. Yeah, that's really true, actually, because a lot of circus performers have this, especially in Australia. Australia's a fascinating um, little microcosm of circus mm-hmm. because we really want to be as good as the rest of the world and we certainly got people who have the talent or at least like the talent potential mm. to do that and we have acrobats and jugglers and all sorts of, you know, equilibrists and stuff and aerialists all over the world in big companies. Like mm-hmm. Australia is represented pretty well in Cirque du Soleil and, uh, you know, kind of small like cabarets and stage and all the big European cabaret scene and that kind of thing like they're there but in terms of sheer drive and skill Australians are really torn between having uh, being really quite generalist and you know learning a bit of everything so they can do a whole show so you know five cast members can do an hour and a half 
rather than the standard practice, which a lot of other Australians have, which is that you dedicate yourself to one skill and that is your skill and you do your act in a show and you are paid quite well for that. And those people definitely earn that. Yep. But it is that that fight between whether you want to be great at one thing or like reasonably mediocre to good at a lot of things. It's kind of like the difference between tennis and gridiron, where in tennis you have to have all the skills. You have to be smart and quick and move around really That's right. cardio, whereas gridiron, you've got they hire role. an AFL player and he comes out and he kicks the goal. And then yeah, and the soccer player is the like running striker, that kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. I, I made up that term. I don't know if it's real. But I think running striker is a fantastic term. Yeah, cool. it. Yeah, it's World Cup season. Yeah, it won't yeah. be by the time you're listening to this podcast. Uh, congratulations to Argentina fans because I presume they're going to win tomorrow, uh, uh, last week. Oh, cool. Yeah. Oh, go Argentina. Yeah. It's one of the really weird things about the, the art form podcast because you have no idea when people are listening to it. It yeah, could be the totally. next World Cup right now. Wow. Mm. Hey, you, so you touched briefly on what, in my mind, being a music person, I divide into like big name or indie circus. Luke West was his name? Louis West. Louis yeah. West. I can edit that. He'd, he'd be more... Circus people are never really famous. Mm -hmm. I mean, the most famous people we have in Australia are um, May Worth and Concolino. Okay, are they crossover artists? Is that why they became famous? Well, no, they were, they're were they our traditional circus kind of legends. So yeah. May Worth was a woman who was adopted by the Worth family and grew up in the Worth family circus. I'm pretty sure she's adopted. I really hope that's right. And she was just a tremendous equestrian performer. So she'd mm. like, there's pictures somewhere floating around where she would do a back salt off the back of a horse that she was standing on yeah. and land on another horse running around in a circle just behind her. Like oh. no ropes, no anything. What She's about trusting your other performers? I mean, yeah, well trusting. Yeah, definitely. Those, those horse performers were pretty dedicated and like they ran around the circle. The circus is built on how tight a horse can run around in a circle. So really, yeah. Astley who made the first circus in England, modern circus because he took the name from Rome but it has no connection to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was measured how close, because he was an equestrian, how tight a circle a horse could ride in without breaking its stride. And to this day, that's how big a big top um, ring is unless someone decides to go bigger for some reason. Uh, or have smaller horses. Yeah, or have yeah little ponies. Yeah, that's so right. that's but the turning circle of Yeah, a horse, even as horses are kind of no longer in most circuses. If 2018 has come around and society has collapsed and you can't get access to Wikipedia or even maybe units of measurement, maybe they've been destroyed, then mm. if you need to set up a circus big top... That's right, get a horse around the circle. Yeah, how big is that? I forget, it's about 18 feet, I think. Yeah. When they got elephants, do you reckon they had to change that? Elephants would have a great turning circle because they've got little knees. Yeah, the, well, that's the thing is elephants, when they performed in the circus, usually do things very similar to how they behave in the wild. Like, I know that sounds ridiculous. Um, <laughs> yeah, they paraded themselves around with dressage no um they would stand on platforms that sort of thing and lift a foot and so they kind of do those things and those sort of tricks and elephants always have this huge smile on their face and as much as i really don't want to see animals in circus anymore because i think they're very well treated the rspca has shown that australian circuses treat their animals very well mm -hmm. like a, a, they did a very conclusive study and i know it's in the 80s now but they're onto it like they're a good organization they keep track of things and people families like ashton's love their animals but the fact is i think my circus history teacher summed it up saying it's anthropomorphizing to try and say that an animal enjoys it even though they look like they do the best we can do is guess and yeah. therefore we're exploiting something without permission for show i'm not against that kind of dog act and stuff because people do live with their dogs and they do tricks with their dogs and they play with them and you know, it's still that guess, but I just feel like it's a bit better. And it's a, you know, it's an animal that is everywhere, whereas an elephant probably shouldn't live in Australia in a truck. That's yeah, it's a safe bet. 
Although yeah. who can say, maybe their natural environment is in a truck in Australia, but they've only ever had the opportunity to live in the plains of Africa. That's true. Uh, yeah, and that's the thing. We're making an assumption. Is that a really big decision in your career to choose between the indie running your own circus troupe or somebody else's five-person group that does an hour-and-a-half show? Or like when you have the opportunity to join Cirque du Soleil or, or Circus Soleil is one of the big global brands, mm. is that your chance at the big time? Is that the vibe? I know no one's famous. Yeah, well, I think, that, I think you're right. Um, for a lot of people, they've got the circus they want. Uh, the big company will... Inf- um, no, more, not so much in form. The, the company you want to go for if you want to work for a company, because there's plenty of people who actively don't. Circus is the home of the iconoclast, and that's really cool. Mm-hmm. There's plenty of um, joiner types and plenty of non-joiner types, and I kind of dig all of them. Um, but you can kind of pick a performance style by the company they want to get in. So I always wanted to be in Oz, and I still would love to be in Oz again one day. And I got the opportunity to be in last year for six months, which was really cool. And toured the US, right? Yeah, and cool. Canada, which was amazing. And shit scary, but just so, <laughs> so exciting. Uh, yeah, so that's a company I'd want to work for again because I dig their kind of vaguely anarchic uh, attitude on stage and mm-hmm. their um, belief in social inclusion and support for the asylum seekers that they are unwavering in, even though they cop a lot of criticism for it. It's yeah. interesting, isn't it? Because they have a, a decided political bent. Yeah. And they do get quite a bit of criticism. And there's a question of, especially with the, the current government, whether they should continue to be funded if they espouse views that are that run contrary to the government. Yeah, which is an interesting, and I'm sure that debate's come up again, but I find it so obnoxious that we believe our arts companies should accept government money and not criticise them. Like, the government does not give these people money. The government gives arts funding bodies money, and they proportion it so that they are an arm's length from the government, and and it's irrespective of the government of the day. The whole point is that art needs to speak truth to power, because that's what clowns do, particularly circus. I mean, some the, great stuff came out of Soviet realism, don't get me wrong. Yeah, totally. And look, you know, and you work within the confines of your art and you make something great in it if mm-hmm. you're good at what you do. And, you know, these kind of limitations have made tremendous art around the world in very open societies and very closed ones. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, the two circuses that you brought up earlier that were examples of just groups of people who were extraordinary virtuosos were the Russian circus yeah. and the Chinese circus. That's right. And they produced, you know, amazing work. And this circus was an opportunity for people to be treated well and respected, even though the expectation was that they'd work very, very, very hard. Yep. In Russia, like up to and including probably now, I guess, I don't know if it's still the case now, but definitely in my trainer's day, mm-hmm. um, Vasily, who's an amazing trainer at Nike, who's a Russian expat, uh, he had to get a trade as well because in you know, like under communist rule, it's, arts is not a career by itself. You have to be able to contribute in other ways. So he built mm. airplanes as well as being a base who had three people standing on his shoulders in a straight line. So he's just an amazingly talented man because he had to be. Yeah, so anyway, uh, back to what I was saying about people pick their company. Um, mm. I'm, I'm very much a fan of Oz's kind of style and I really like that rough and ready Australian circus flavour. And there's plenty of people I went to school with who Cirque du Soleil was the goal. They wanted to slot into a performance, be told what to do and be tremendous at what they did. And there's nothing wrong with that. I can and sympathise with that. That's, I mean, it sounds lovely. Yeah. Having some direction after spending years and years trying to choose my own path as a musician, mm. as a writer and whatever. Sometimes it's, it's deafening or it's restricting to not have somebody suggest... Why don't you do this? Have you yeah, tried right. juggling axes? We need an axe guy. Yeah. That's my go-to in case In Cirque du Soleil, you'd bring your skill and your apparatus and your refined thing. And, you you know, there's an expectation that you'll be amongst the world's best, if not the best, at what you do. 
and you'll be put in a show. And they're like, Cirque du Soleil are pretty harsh company. As a juggler, they'll measure the amount of times you drop in a year. They will write that down and record every single drop in your act. Wow. And as somebody who's always been a big believer that I kind of want to see a performer drop a ball. Yeah, like, absolutely. Yeah, I'm friend Sam Floyd, who's another great camera mm -hmm. artist and writer, um, who's also a really tremendous juggler and circus performer. Well, I'd like to see him do more of that, actually. But mm. he, his belief was that a perfect act has one drop because that way you know a performer's working as hard as they can for you. Yeah, exactly. It's the, uh, the Parkinson's principle where you keep trying until you get to the edge of your ability and then you try a little bit harder. Mm. So you, the failure is an indication of the fact that you're trying as hard as you can. Yeah, which comes back to what I was saying about teaching, is that you know circus is that perfect example or like allegory i guess for mistakes being essential to improvement yeah without a doubt i always feel when i see a, when i see the one drop then immediately for the next five minutes i'm way more I, I really want them to succeed after that yeah or with um what do you call when there's a person who's lying down and another person who's getting thrown around in the air by their feet ah uh, that's um risley or icarian games uh, risley or icarian games yeah i think icarian games is the kind of highfalutin name it was given to you know allude to icarus though i don't know why because no well, wax. It's, it's kind of well, yeah. No wax, no wings. I get that you know, constantly trying to fly, but not not achieving it. But you know, he did it once. Uh, anyway, but Risley was the Risley family, and they performed it famously first. And um, yeah, one drop in that is a big deal. But yeah, and it, and it makes. But then for the next five minutes, the danger is so heightened, and the emotional connection for me is is formed in that moment. And that, mm. then I really want them to succeed after that. Yeah. Well, I think a drop in circus is a unexpected moment of honesty. And mm. I think that's a really good way to look at it because to, a performer might have a prepared way to deal with it, in which case it'll be slick no matter what they do, or they might totally break, or you might see a little edge of frustration if it's the fourth drop and, mm -hmm. you know, there's that little crack under the pressure, or they might just own it. And yeah. I've always been someone who's really tried to work hard to just go, yeah, whoops, um, yeah. but let's go again and I hope you're enjoying it, that kind of thing. Do you have to train to feel that way? Do you, do you like, obviously it comes naturally to some people, but do it come naturally to you to, no. to shrug it off? Yeah, no, there's a real powerful embarrassment when you're a kid doing circus and you just can't get anything right on stage. And you've got to, I think, you know, like a, any musician, yeah. the difference between playing so a virtuosic piece in your, in your bedroom and then pulling that out in a room full of people who, you know, and a music is an unusual form because a lot of people will happily ignore a musician, but not always. Mm. So, you know, a musician suddenly being looked at by 30 to 3,000 people, that's a that's a different thing. Yeah, and I and know that the different forms of music. I mean, classical musicians feel a lot worse about themselves if there's a drop. That's right. You yeah, know, there's a moment say. in the piece, and that's the moment they fixate on, which is how I used to be. But these days, I realise that the art form relies more upon the continuing through it or engaging with it. And that's right. And I think that's those those two schools. Like, mm -hmm. there's the school of argument that says that a drop is a good thing, mm -hmm. and the school that says a drop is a bad thing. Music and circus. And, and how people deal with that in either way is really an interesting insight into who they are as a performer. And I think you're right. Generally, because humans tend to be nice people, mm -hmm. we really feel for that person. We want them to succeed for the rest of the act, especially if they drop two or three times when you really start aching for them. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, Risley's a, like a, a big example where a drop is a big deal. Like, mm -hmm. it could go horribly wrong, same as an aerialist or a tight wire walker or a unicyclist. Yeah. You know, odds are good that it won't. Um, because if it was high that it would, I don't think many people would be keen to see it. Mm. Um, but, you know, 
you want you really want them to get it and there's no bigger applause than for the person who lands on their head gets up and finishes the act before walking off stage and icing it yep it's a very is that a very Australian thing or is that an international thing oh no that thing? is international there's an uh, amazing video of a woman in Russia who's another example like Russian circus performers mm-hmm. are just so good she's doing a quad back salt on a Russian bar that's like this kind of imagine a big wobbly bouncy bar held on the shoulders of two tanks like doesn't yeah. matter who they are just big people and they kind of use that to bounce down and treat it like a trampoline but it's a trampoline that's also the, the width of a balance beam so and as hard as a piece of wood yeah so it's yeah it's about 15 centimeters yeah and it is a piece of wood so when you hit it the wrong way you slap it this one does three attempts at a four like quad back salts so four back salts in a row and falls off once and lands on her head once and then gets up and finishes it and it is the most amazing thing I've ever seen and the most horrible thing to watch over mm. and over again. Con Colino is an example of someone I think he did, he was the Wizard of the Wire, first person to a front salt on the tight wire and that's a big wow. deal because a back salt's amazing but yep. it, with the technique that some people can employ in a tight wire, you can watch the wire as you go around. So you can do a back salt see. and you can see it early and land. With a front salt, you see the wire in the first half and then it disappears until you've landed. So you're guessing and that's that's a real wire, like a wow. big thick piece of metal but not that wide. Um, and he was a high wire performer, he performed without lines and he fell off once, climbed up, fell off and landed on his chest and I think and lacerated it and fell off. And I think it took him like several attempts and then he got it. Wow. And so, yeah, that's Conclino, our kind of the other famous Australian performer back in traditional times. He was an Aboriginal man who had to pretend he was Spanish to tour Australia because... Oh, my God. Yeah, because people wouldn't see an Aboriginal, but they would see the exotic foreigner kind of thing. Terrible. Yeah, and well, Conclino and Mayworth are really good examples of what we were saying about famous performers is that we circus people won't be famous. It, there might be a name here or there. Like, people know the name Leotard, but not for the fact that he did was the first triple on a trapeze. They <laughs> did, did it because he was principal in inventing the Leotard. Yeah, which is a fantastic outfit. I mean, yeah, more power to him. Totally. You know, yeah. the bit of mint sticking out of your pants <laughs> is exactly what you want while you're doing trapeze. Yeah, yeah but... Concolino and Mayworth found huge fame in America, like huge. And mm. when Mayworth died, they didn't get she didn't get an obituary in an Australian paper. Oh my and god! And she was like, you know, front page news in America. She was a star act in the Ringling Three Brother uh, Three Ring Circus. And so that's it's kind of sad because I think that's another example of Australia's tall poppy syndrome, where we mm. just don't respect. No, not tall poppy. It's the it's the difference. It's we just assume that we're not as good. We're desperately trying to prove ourselves. We don't like people like sticking out from the crowd mm-hmm. and. We're not proud of the achievements of the people. The amount of Australian inventions that have gone unpatented by Australian companies because they just couldn't see any use for like soluble aspirin. Right, really? Yeah, yeah. Soluble aspirin's Australian, but a French company bought it because no one in Australia saw any merit to something that would make aspirin more easy to swallow. Wow, and more effective, quicker because it's down to the water and stuff. So it's a cultural cringe thing. Yeah, that's it. Every time I hear you refer to the technical aspects like when you talk about how the wire disappears if somebody does a forward flip but not a back flip mm. or a front flip not a back flip well it disappears for longer and at a more key point but yeah. yeah it just makes me appreciate the tricks so much more it makes me want to see the performance again mm. knowing that now I'm, I'm always the kind of person who after a movie goes and reads all the trivia because then i appreciate the performances yeah. more knowing who was subbed out and who was subbed in and what the That's director right. was thinking uh which is i mean half the reason why i'm doing what we're doing right now mm. uh i feel like if only people were educated more about circus if people well, not educated that sounds so no but i know what you mean but it's if they the, knew more if you feel like on. you could convey the effort behind it not just the trick because yeah. i have some this tricks thing. look so easy yes that, that they're often the most difficult mm. and some tricks are complex but 
look messy, even if they're done well. So they're not yeah. worth putting on stage, even though they're so good and especially as a juggler, this, right? I mean, juggling is a perfect example. I've seen some com- like complex, like European style juggling yeah. and things God, that just good. you look at it and you think, oh yeah, this guy's sort of clowning or something. But really, it's some of the most yeah, it's incredibly complicated, you know, signatures and that sort of thing. Mm. That is something that really informs my work, actually, is trying to break that connection for someone who's never seen or experienced circus. Because mm. when you live and breathe it, it's really easy to forget what people know and don't know. And what they're seeing. And what they're seeing, that's right. And it's really easy for circus performers to disappear up their own ass, thinking that what they're doing is great. Where really, what they're doing either requires somebody to have a base appreciation of just how much work went into it, mm-hmm. or needs to look good enough that a performer who's never seen it will appreciate what it looks like. It needs to be flashy. That's right, yeah, or just neat and clean and that mm-hmm. kind of thing. And there's a lot of technique and decision-making that goes in that, and juggling's a perfect example. Some of my favourite tricks are unperformable. Unperform- uh, like literally unperformable? Yeah, well, because you're going to a lot of effort for doing something the eye cannot watch. And as a juggler, I watch them and I can't see the difference. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's very Dadaist or something. It's the... Or existentialist, the the only person who will truly appreciate the performance is the person doing it. Yeah, that's right, and you know, and that's where you get into that really thorny question that a lot of circus performers have, which is, what is self-indulgent, what isn't? Because I tend to be in the camp that anything someone wants to watch is not self-indulgent. If you're making something that no one wants to see but you, then it is, and I don't think then any performance can truly be said to be that. I mean, you could maybe make some performance art out of stringing together a hundred such tricks. Where it just sort of looked like you were doing much the same thing, but the but the people in the audience knew and you knew that each of them was unique and difficult and extraordinarily complex. Well, that would be good. I'm really interested in breaking that down, as I said, and I really like the idea of explaining things. I mean, one joke kind of act I did in Schmickaz, which is the Canberra trip I've made with um, Sam Davy, Rachel Sneddon, El Kirschbaum, and Sam Floyd. El Kirschbaum oh, and Sam Floyd, who are still a great set of names right there. Yeah, they're a pretty great bunch of people too. Um, we did an act, a juggling act, where we explained the language of juggling, but it was all nonsense because we made it up. But a friend of mine, Pablo Latona, who's a really great, you know, cross-disciplinary artist. Who's yeah, hard wonderful wordsmith and magician. And, and, and musician and musician. circus performer and sideshow performer and... Any like, motive writer storyteller. And actor. And yeah, he's a wonderful ridiculous. Story. Yeah. Like, you know, video artist as well. Yeah, absurd. He did the sound for Left um, huh. and refused to charge me for it too. He's that kind of <laughs> great guy. Yeah. Oh, it's really frustrating because I've already declared what I'm paying on tax. So now I have to go and apologize to my accountant and change the Excel spreadsheet I gave them. Oh, just do the, do the old uncle thing where you next time you see him, shake hands with him, and then as he walks off, he'll realize that he's got 400 bucks in his pocket. Yeah, I'll do that. But the problem is the paper trail. He's invoiced me for le- like for his flights, not for the full cost I wanted to pay him. Oh, anyway, I, I, yeah. I get distracted. Well, the, accountants, the accountancy behind this stuff is important for people to hear about because people don't mm. realize that part of running your own uh, anything, your troupe or your musical life or whatever, is trying to balance those... Like tax? Yes. Oh, and less is the the big deal for me because I have an ABN and I'm a sole trader. Mm -hmm. So as far as I know, I can still run a business through that and that means paying people and having outgoings and declaring losses and that kind of thing. But left is just this time where I had this show that was very important Mm -hmm. and I couldn't really let go of the first season. I couldn't hand a job to somebody else because I didn't know enough to know that I could trust them because I didn't know if I could do it. Mm. And I didn't know if I could give them the information to do their job properly. So uh, when my production manager dropped out because she said 
I'm sorry, Tom, but I really want to be a French interpreter, which I did not <laughs> expect, but was amazing. And I kind of was like, well, that is a dream that you are clearly in love with. Please live it. And she's doing it's great. So it's awesome. And so I was directing, writing and being in it and then suddenly producing as well. Oh, dear. And, um, and marketing. And I did a terrible job marketing, but that's okay. That's how we learn. Hey, we're here to help because the show's going to continue, right? Oh, yeah. Hooray. Yeah. yeah. It's on at the fringe. It's the stuff that people don't realize lies behind running your own thing. Yes, that's right. And it's, yeah, and it's working out whether I can pay people and working out profit share agreements and all this kind of stuff. It's, mm. That's right. It's that technical information that you just start absorbing without meaning to because you have to know it. And there's a good chance some of what I think is wrong. Maybe I can't mm. pay people as a sole trader. I think I can run a business through my business number, but mm-hmm. I don't know if I have to legally change that to being a company or just me. Yeah. Yeah. No one's complained yet, so I think it's okay because I've been paying people for gigs over the years because even though I'm very disorganized, I occasionally get farmed work out of the blue that I can pass on to my friends. Uh, nod to Elle Kirschbaum. Well, great, yeah. That kind of thing. Yeah, well, she's the person who gets me work and works really hard to get everyone she knows work, so she's the one who knows about that. Definitely a future friend and, of the show. Yeah, oh, absolutely. She has, She'd be fascinating. Yeah, such a great approach to these things. So we mm. talked about a greater appreciation of the circus arts just from knowledge of what's actually going on and also what happens behind the scenes. Yeah. I think for me, there were lots of, like I, I'm always looking for that kind of detail. I'm always talking to people like yourself, trying to get behind the how things run. But I think the most I've ever learned from a performance about what was going on behind the scenes and what the life of somebody in this, in any perf- art form actually, not just circus, the most I ever got out of a single performance was definitely left. Really? I came away from oh, left cool. saying, that was a wonderful, subtle narrative about what, it, this is my reading of it, wonderful, mm. subtle narrative of, of what it is to try and live the life of a circus performer, the, the risks and the setups and the heartbreak. Mm. And I don't know if that's actually what you were thinking when you put together the show, but I'd love to hear, I mean, for the audience's benefit as well, it'd be great to hear you explain left. Yeah, right. I can, well, it's, that's a really interesting idea because I guess that's one of those things we were talking about earlier with Kayla, which is that a life of the person making a work is inevitably informs what they make because mm-hmm. there was no real desire to get across circus and my life in circus in the show, but it's a circus show all about people trying to be quite upfront and honest. And so that is inevitable. Mm-hmm. So that's actually really cool. It's really good to know. But to explain left, um, I've been a circus performer since I was about 10 years old. I did gymnastics and then quickly fell madly in love with it and then madly out of love with it as I ran into the kind of discipline Mm. that, you know, gymnastics, which has gotten a lot better in intervening years. But, you know, when you get to the AIS as a 10-year-old, they're not nice to you. And there's an expectation that you perform pretty hard. Um, Or at least they weren't nice to you. Mm -hmm. And they kind of tried to be, but it was, you know, if you're any kind of kid who doesn't run well with discipline... Um, you yep. just butt up against that system really hard and, and it will crush you. Like, I had to leave. You either make and, a Disney movie or it crushes you. That's right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then a kid who did that as a friend of mine uh, called Dashiell, who hopefully is off doing something amazing, he got me into a youth theatre that did circus. Like, it was a circus mm-hmm. street theatre and that was arena. And I went to this uh, woman's house in Spence, hung out with her kids and learned circus. And a lot of it was vague direction from her, just going, well, this is the rough idea. And then... Just spending a few hours every weekend learning Pointing to... your head? Well, yeah. We'd, like, we'd borrow their unicycles because they had a lot of equipment. And cool. I'd ride between two, like, full-on... Like, they're, they're really great people, but they're classic sons who are always doing up cars, that kind of thing. So there was two derelict old cars on the lawn that I would learn to ride between. <laughs> and then I'd ride up and down the road because it was a cul-de-sac and that was really safe. And I learned to juggle and, you know, made a teeterboard out of an old log and a painter's plank and that kind of thing, which we eventually broke, me and my friend James. That's the making of a great 
training montage right there was, in the Tom Davis, the this Tom Davis story. It's one of those things I look back really fondly because I'd kind of forgotten that that's how I'd started. You know, I learned to chin balance. I learned to do heaps of circus before I actually went to a more proper circus, which was Warehouse Circus. Mm-hmm. And I grew up there and then went to, like, formed that company, Schmickers, with Ellen Floyd and um, Sam and Rach. And... Then from there, it was kind of in these two minds where I applied for a grant to do a show I'd written that I really wanted to do that was all about conspicuous consumption for some reason. But mm-hmm. I fell in love with that after reading a bunch of books about downside, downshifting. Yeah, and then you know, applying to Nike, and I applied for both and got Nike. So I moved to Melbourne. Big decisions. Yeah, it was a big deal, and I really loved doing it. I'm really glad of that outcome because Melbourne is just such a tremendous city, and I really love it. And as a Canberra kid, there's, it's like what would happen if Canberra exploded to... 10 times the size. Finishing NICA, I was all set to kind of get out there and start working again and trying to make work. And then in March, a really close friend of mine died. Um, Yeah, she didn't survive an operation to remove a cancer, which was like, you know, gutting, obviously, for me and my friend who was married to her and and for everyone she knew because she was just this amazing person. And then a month after that, my sister died. Yeah, so that was quite devastating. And do you know that kind of thing where you're all there for a friend, even though you're sad and that's your job. And then suddenly like, you can't even do that. Like you're just there going, I'm sorry. I'm like, I'm almost as fucked as you are. Like, yep. I certainly sympathize. Yeah. And so I was dealing with that and kind of pulling away from lots of relationships and friendships and that kind of thing without noticing. And it took me a while Mm. actually, um, going out, like meeting Jess and flirting with her and meeting this wonderful woman who I was kind of not a not intentionally at all, but sort of a dick to because I kept being really vague and not keen to commit to anything. And mm-hmm. and I couldn't do it until I really f- realized that I was pulling away from relationships. And once I had that revelation, it was really easy. And I fell madly in love with her and we're still together, which is really good. Um, but yeah, but it was born from that experience that I wrote a show trying to deal with that loss and like, and that revelation of how important it is to commit to being gutted by a relationship and how important a friendship and a like a family relationship of any kind is like in the case of my best friend, it was his wife and in case of me, it was, you know, that friend and my sister. And yeah, so I wrote this show and I was really proud of it. And I thought like, you know, poured my heart out and wrote these things and gave these huge long lectures in the middle of it and submitted a grant proposal because I just couldn't get the capital to get started. And so I thought, well, grants, but the moment you ask for a grant, they expect wages, which is a good thing to expect. But that turns a show that you could do for $4,000 into a show that you have to do for $50,000. Yeah. Because the moment you take paying people properly into account for the um, extraordinary amount of work they'll do for you, Mm -hmm. um, it's untenable unless you're going to get a big grant to do it. And I was shocked that they rejected this this masterpiece until I, you know, cooled my heels for a little bit, read it back a few months later, and it was garbage it was oh, just no. it was the worst show it was like preachy and lectury and needlessly maudlin and so not really what I actually wanted to do in my head and so it took a long time to like throw everything out and make it all tie together and all the elements you see and left are there yeah but I had to get rid of the idea of telling people how to feel because as my dad says if you want to if you want to send a message write a telegram or write a letter like he's like yep music and art and well music is art but all art forms you can have a subtext but you're not there to deliver a like a polemic yeah unless you're chris mitchell on your soapbox 
Well, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You got to make it funny. That's right. Yeah, you got to at least make it funny. Yeah, comedy can totally do it, but it has to be funny or else job failed. Yep. So it took me a while to really throw that out, and it was hanging out with Jess actually, just kind of resting my head in her belly in the sunlight one day, which was really nice. Where I jumped up and went, "Where's my laptop?" And she was like, "What's wrong?" <laughs> and I said, "I've worked it out. I can work out how to tie it together." And so it's the games in the show where I realized that yeah. I could get the point of the show across by using that idea I'd had. But I didn't know why I'd had that idea, so I put it all together. And so I made Left, which is a show all about the importance of community and how essential it is that we work together. And it, for me, it's perfect because that's exactly what circus is. You know, the moment anyone joins circus, they'll find a community of people, mm-hmm. whether they're misfits or jocks or like crazy nut jobs. But they'll, you'll find a team of people that you work with, and that you've got to really trust, and you've got to really build that trust. And it's, mm-hmm. you know, a perfect uh, allegory, I guess, for real life. So that's the show I made. And almost from, I don't know if it's a fact or not, but is it is it true that in that show there's very, very few tricks that anybody does without the help of somebody else? I yes. Feel like everybody's so, always relying on somebody in that show. Yeah. The, well, the underlying ethos of the show and how it's made is most circus shows you see that go for an hour or so, because of the sheer workload involved, you might have a few ensemble acts. Circus Oz is very prone to having like you've got your solo and then you'll jump into all these other things. So they expect multi-skill performers because they are more rough and ready and you need, you know, they've got nine to 10 circus performers on stage and a couple of musicians and a rigger, all of whom will need to know circus in some capacity. Of course. I mean, yeah. the lighting, you have to know where someone's going to land and what's going to No, but the rigger will be a performer. Oh, of course. So in the case of yeah. the current ensemble, they've got Bo Dudding, who's a tremendous tight wire walker, yep. as well as can, you know, juggle and do hats and do all sorts mm. of stuff. In fact, when I was in Oz, he could do hats as well as me. And it was really embarrassing to go, I'm in the national circus performing this thing I'm quite scared about. Yep. And the rigger is somebody who can critique my technique. Mm. And that was like, oh God, it was really stressful. But like, also valuable, right? Having yeah. somebody who can... Yeah, sort of. He's, um, because I just met him, he's a really stern guy. He's really nice, but it takes a while to get used to the fact that he's really nice. And so I found him incredibly hard to read and really like, you know, I got into Oz with a day's notice. Oh, no. Yeah, really? so yeah, they called me up and said, Do you have a solo act? Do you still have a hats routine? And I went, Well, yeah, thinking, Why wouldn't I? That's my act. Yeah. Um, and can you push a teeterboard, which is the big seesaw where people mm-hmm. fly off? And so I can't do tricks off it, but I can push people. I've yep. got the technique and I know how to launch them pretty high. And I know all the how to work with other people to really send someone off into the air. Yep. And so they said, Yeah, come in for an audition. But the audition wasn't an audition. They got me to run my act to the band who said, This is the music we had for the other act. They got me to perform that and then run through it three times, which is weird because that's a rehearsal, not an audition. Yeah. And everyone was acting, and everyone in the cast was acting like I was definitely in, but no one in the executive was saying I was because they wanted to obviously reserve the rights to go, to put it on no. You. Yeah. Um, and then at the end of the day, they said, you've got a six-week contract, you start tomorrow, uh, you need to go upstairs and book tickets to Darwin. Oh, my God. Yeah, and so I was suddenly in Circus Oz performing to 1,300 people, at like, you know, in every show, at least, you know, sometimes up to 2,000. Then they oh. extended my contract, which was really nice because um, they liked what I did and mm-hmm. they had a cast member who was still suffering a concussion he couldn't get over. Ooh. Yeah, he, he did went off a teeterboard and missed. And, yeah, wow. it, like... You can always mitigate risk, but that's inevitable to some degree that yep. sometimes you'll get injured. And he's a really, really amazing guy and someone like... I wasn't even filling in for him because he's just way too talented. I was filling in a completely different niche yep. for another space. But they liked what I did, which was really cool. So I had the Johnny on the spot moment of getting into the big dream company and the honour of being rehired back for at least the next four months. Which is, I mean, the audition's one thing, but if they found working with you and seeing your performance over and over... 
to to the standard that they'd rehire you. That's the real. Well, yeah, and I I was proud of that because I shat myself whenever the executive were in the audience, like really daunting. Even though they'd seen me rehearse, Mm -hmm. suddenly it's like, well, this is my job. Um, Yeah, and then I got to do the tent season in Sydney, which is great because the big dream for me has always been to be a tent, uh, be in a tent, and be in Circus Oz. And getting to both and live in Sydney for a month was ridiculously incredible. And then to tour to the US and Canada. With just an absurd kind of gig. Like, it's one of those things where you go, what? I'm being paid to go here and go visit San Francisco and Davis in California and spend a week in Boston and, yeah, yeah and perform in a theatre to 1,500 people. And Americans are amazing. They are the most Better friendly audiences. audiences ever. Like, Australians will give it up eventually, but they'll mm-hmm. sit in their, like, hands until they, they think you've earned it. Like, no, well, that's not true. They're polite. Mm. But Americans are, they will give you a standing ovation for like a show that I thought was very good and very fun. Mm. But to get a standing ovation in Australia would have to be an absolute world-class masterpiece. Yeah. Yeah, and they, they did it for every show and it, you couldn't help but feel so loved and they were so warm the moment you walked out on stage. Mm. Like, because Circus Oz, the nature of their shows is that they work the audience before they even start. And these American crowds were just so happy to just chat and talk yep. and participate and get involved and take your photo before they'd seen you do anything. Huh. And yeah, that was so cool. It was like such an honour to get to perform in America. I think maybe the way Australians look at the applause and the rewarding the performers on stage, I think that maybe people think about it performatively themselves and they think, oh, Americans are a bit over the top in that they choose to stand up and clap, but maybe what Mm. they're missing is the fact that it's not about each audience member or even the audience as a whole. It's about the people on stage. Yeah. And so it's your way of... It's the only way you can communicate is clapping. So it's mm. extraordinarily limiting anyway. So if you really want to clap and, and give an impression that you really did feel like you had your money's worth or whatever mm. matters to you, the fact that you had an emotional experience or that you saw something great, even if it wasn't enough to actually drive you to your feet, because mm. I think that's what people are waiting for. They want to be grabbed by the coat and lifted into well, the so, air. And I... Th- and I but, thing I can't ask people to change because I'm not that audience member either. I'm not going to stand up for just anything. But there's a culture to it and I feel mm. like if, if everybody else maybe it'll happen over time. But yeah, mate. It's, it has to happen as a group. It has to happen as a way of seeing, a way of interacting with performances. Yeah and I think as Australia becomes increasingly culturally diverse uh, despite the best efforts of our leaders, mm. um, we're going to see much more blending of what Australian culture is and I think we'll see really different audience responses over time. It'll be a long time before that happens. Because all the you know all our new Australians need to be given the chance and the confidence to walk into a theatre and behave the way they want to. So having had the chance with Circus Oz, and he's hoping in future as well, they'll pick you up and yeah, that'd um, be nice. They're great people. <laughs> and also running your own show. When you look into your future, making a living in circus and or more or less. Mm. Yeah, it is more or less because. I've always been happy to do something else, but I've never been happier than when I get to afford to do circus as mm-hmm. my living. Um, to answer that question way, way, way back when as to why we, I talk about Oz and why we choose the companies we choose, uh, I do prefer to make my own work. And that was a revelation I had in Oz. That was the goal that I had as my circus career was get into Oz for long enough that it doesn't feel like I'm just a ring-in. Because yep. um, uh. I didn't even think I'd get that necessarily, but... You know, that would have been nice, but it wouldn't have been ticked off the list. Mm-hmm. But doing six months, I went, all right, if I never get into Oz again, I've done it and I'm proud of that. And I, you know, and I think I worked really hard there. Mm. And that was cool. And I think it made me a better performer too. It certainly made me a more run-in performer and more seasoned. Like my hat routine's already better because I just know that I can screw it up in front of a few thousand people and not worry too much. And so I think I enjoy it more. Yeah. 
Yeah, um, but I, all I wanted to do is come back and make left. And obviously, it's a really personal show, even though I try really hard to not to make it quite. Well, it has to be personal because all art, the personal is the political, I think. You know, the more it's about you, the more universal it is, mm. I think. Um, but, you know, it was something that drove me and, I, and I've always just wanted to make something I wrote and I created and I... A reflection um, of yourself. Yeah, or just, uh, just a reflection of an idea, but I guess it's inevitably in a, a reflection of yourself and left has to be that. Yeah, because, you know, and, and it's a show that will always have meaning for me, so... Mm-hmm. When we first performed it at the Gaswork Showdown, which we won, which was surprising, like which is what, a competition for a grant or a yeah, well, for no, funding? it's a, it's the theatre, the Gasworks Arts Park. They run it every year where they get eight so eight to ten circus shows who enter and they do a kind of fifteen minute vignette of a show they're working on or just mm-hmm. fifteen minutes worth of circus or whatever. And I put a boiled down version of Left and got a bunch of friends that really really helped me out to make it and choreograph it and make that work. And I did it just to get a theatre because I wanted people to get a taste of what it could be and and just see if I could get the project off the ground because I'm not really good at project management, which is yeah. why Jess is doing it for me and she's great. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and we won the heat, but just before performing it, my brother-in-law died. Uh, Yeah, so it was very personal then. And of course, you know, working that emotion into the show because, you know, it was just being hit by it again. And in a different way because, you know, he really suffered from mental illness and so he became more and more withdrawn. So even though I'd sit next to him on the couch, he'd be nice and friendly and there and present, but he just wouldn't talk as much. So it's, um, yeah, so that was like very, very sad. And it was obviously another way to lose somebody and so, you know, another way to, for someone to go is because mental illness kills them rather than surgery or an accident. Yeah, and then had to fly back directly from the funeral to perform in the finale, which oh was God. pretty intense. Yeah, that was a hard night, uh, but, you know, kind of worth it. And it felt like a very tri- fitting tribute to him. Yeah. Do you um, feel like once you're on the stage focusing on the act, you forget about what else is happening in your life? Or absolutely. is it with you the whole yeah, time? Yeah, look, I was... Left as um, is a show where I've tried to break down that barrier between being on stage and being off stage. Mm-hmm. I want the audience to feel really welcome and safe from the moment they come in, know that they're not going to be picked on or ridiculed and that they're going to see something hopefully fun and mostly fun, but whether they know it or not, there's a, a bit of a punch in the guts waiting for it, but that I'm not going to leave them on that note because, yeah. you know, part of grief is acceptance and moving on and and not forgetting ever, but, but knowing that you'll, like, enjoy you know, the other people that you're with and you'll never forget this person that they've never really left you. Yeah. Yeah, and there's a lot of things that many, many other great writers and artists and thinkers have postulated before and is still true. Mm. But, yeah, I wanted to make sure that it was there and that that was a respected part of it, that, you know, part of loss is picking yourself up again and appreciating that you had them for the time that you had them. Coming back from um, Graham and, mm-hmm. you know, performing something that is essentially a tribute to him, Eleanor and Jackie, and, and you know, everyone else in the cast has their own people who it's dedicated to. Absolutely. And so for and some of them, it's, it's personal for a lot of the other people. In the, yeah, and that was a really well. interesting thing to have a sit down with them and talk about why they were in the show and why they signed up. Because my first casting was open casting. Mm-hmm. If you wanted to be in it because you identified with it, you're welcome to be. I see. With the proviso that you worked very bloody hard. Cause, yeah, and you're you know, willing to. The less experience you've got, the more you had to learn to be in there. And even if you were experienced, everyone in the show has to perform something they've never done before. And Interesting. that's an that's ongoing rule. So no matter what season or how many times you've done it, you either have to get better at the act you're in or yep. try something new and be in that. Wow. 
That's all. Because, yeah, because as you're saying, it's all ensemble. So no solo tricks in the show at all. I mean, there's there's solo moments and no, yeah, every single act features at least one or two people. And there's a very key act where everyone's very isolated doing a trick by themselves because that's a really great way to convey that moment. And that's essential to yeah. grief is living with yourself and being with yourself. The idea is this very group, which ties back to, or finishes what we were saying before mm. about uh, most circuses, you'll have your act and you'll help out, which is how we got into Oz. Yep. Uh, but in this one, it's a very high workload for everybody because depending on how physical you want to be, you could be in 18 acts. And oh, you don't and have to be in everything, but you will be in most of it. Some of the stuff was, it seemed targeted to be exhausting. Some yeah, the, well, some, some of it was very specifically so. Yeah, I mean, was that, a, was that your decision or was that collaborative with the... I'm, I am picturing the gymnast at the front of the stage about a third of the way through who, who back in the, in the night of debauchery... Uh, uh, no, it's actually after that. That's um, that's in the scene. The last five scenes, every scene is built on for a reason. So you know, I, I learned, I read a really great book about screenwriting that said, unless it's a comedy, and to some degree even a comedy, but mm. comedy can break more rules. Uh, every scene has to have a purpose, every moment, every dialogue. And if it doesn't, yep. you should get rid of it because. And theatre works really similarly to cinema in that it has a very finite running time that you can excuse a performer for like doing yeah. you know a movie that's three hours better justify its existence and any theater show that has a interval better justify the fact that it needs an interval yep. and i'm a big believer that a good circus show should be uh, like one and done in an hour and left around a bit longer than that just because the, the nature of meeting people meant that we waited for every audience member before we started no matter how late they were which is something i won't do again because i cannot believe just how late someone can be to a theater. <laughs> oh my god well i mean yeah. you can sympathize with people locking the doors five minutes in. yeah that's order. right yeah. yeah it's something that always annoyed me is the person who's one minute late because i think that is actually unjustified unless it's you know you can't come in for the first act because it's dangerous and then you can go in that makes sense but yeah so yeah it's all ensemble performance and it's all something new mm-hmm. what's your and what was that, your latest new thing uh, mine is pole, so I'd never really done pole or never performed it before. Oh, you so look very natural scampering off a pole. You look like a well, monkey. It was really fun. Yeah, it was something I really... I don't think I... You know, I don't know how far I'll get as an advanced tech performer, but it's something I felt like I really took to. Yep. Like, the sort of pain it involves is the kind of soreness that doesn't bug me. Like, because I'm quite paranoid and anxious about pain, but, you know, I don't mind getting a burn or a rub or that kind of thing, and that's what okay. pole is, is just tearing your skin apart as you oh. slide down it if you get it wrong. Um, wow. But, yeah, so Flick is doing backflips in the front of that scene and that's yep. in the left scene where that's what i was saying every act is built on an emotional purpose so for the yep. first two-thirds of the story every act is an element of a relationship and how it builds stronger mm-hmm. so you've got the games are kind of shared experiences or like in jokes the kind of mutual language that friends yep. speak all the other acts are risk trust care like the dance which is unfortunately scrapped for the next show because I don't oh, yeah. think it fits. And it needs a lot of work. Yep. It's, it's the bit I was most unhappy with. Um, but it, its idea was that it was looking after the sick. Like, you know, we, we strengthen relationships by our care for each other. And then there's mutual endeavour. So that was pole, which was everyone working together to get to the top of this thing. Trapeze was all about um, just help. Uh, yeah. So the idea is that no one got onto the trapeze without the help of somebody else. Yep. Then they do their moment and then they help somebody else up before they get off. And it was so creative how they how there are ju- you wouldn't think there are so many ways to help somebody else onto a thing or climb over somebody or be hoisted or to be thrown. Yeah, yeah. and that's when my cast really came into it because a lot of the show I had a really clear picture of what I wanted or actually a really blurry picture of what I wanted <laughs> that they helped me clear up. Yep. And that one, I don't know trapeze, I'm not an aerialist. So I said, anyone who wants to be in it, this is your brief 
and mm-hmm. I gave them that rule and they built it. All the skills, all the sets, all the ideas is all them. And so I really like that, even though it's a show that's very kind of auteur driven, mm. it has to be made by the cast who are in it. Yeah. And it has to be theirs and it has to be personal because they have to share a story about themselves yeah. about a time they got hurt and that kind of thing. Um, that's hopefully funny. That was really eye-opening that just because you understand that people must get injured in the mm. process of learning circus. And I tried to make like, sure that at least half the stories were non-circus related injuries that, yep. you know, people being kids or people in stupid misadventures because yeah, everyone dad has daring you to jump off the roof. Give me a break. Yeah. Well, he got really <laughs> upset about that when he saw it. Yeah. Cat's dad was like, really? it was a misunderstanding. I didn't step out of the way. I just didn't know that you were jumping to me. I was encouraging you to jump to the ground. <laughs> Yeah, and Kat was just like, it was a joke. And he was like, well, I'm being misrepresented. And I think that's fair enough. I didn't realise that that was the case. I think, you know, that's not something I want to do is upset someone's dad. Uh, Well, that's a philosophical difference too. I've always been of the, um, I've always been of the belief that a certain proportion of a story and the proportion differs from story to story and person teller to teller is you can embellish or add or... To, to get the reaction that the, that the story deserves. Mm. And I think that's part of the skill of storytelling is embellishing in such a way that it gets... It drives the, the intent. Pati- yeah, the pati- yeah, exactly. drives the intent. Yeah. It gets the particular reaction that it would deserve if you'd lived the story. Mm. It's never exciting to say that something amazing happened to you twice. So you say that it happened three times and then people get that magic That's right. You've got the one-two punch. Yeah. When really it was that moment of serendipity was magical even if it was just twice. Mm. Yeah. So, yeah, so um, Flick is doing backsaults because they're the last five acts of the show, once um, once the big kind of twist happens and we start going to the grieving section, mm-hmm. uh, every act is the Elizabeth, uh, I've forgotten her name, but the, the person who posited the five stages of grief. Mm-hmm. And even though there's a lot of people that argue that's not really a fundamental um, truth because everyone experiences grief in different ways and multiple emotions at once. But generally, like, you can recognise the stages when you're in it, even if you'll flip back from between them. So I, I like they're not was, sequential stages or they're, they're, you know, they're individual, but they're all, but they're all there and yeah. they're all like, I think she hit the money cause they are absolutely present and they are the most powerful emotions you feel at any one time, even yeah. if there's two at once, but that is, you know, um, denial, anger, bargaining, depression and acceptance. Yeah. And so the last five acts of the show represent one of those. And that act where everyone's working either standing up, like walking on glass bottles or on the slack wire or, um, or Flick who's doing the back salts, yeah. she's anger. So she's just doing, she's doing what circus performers sometimes do or some circus performers do. And I'm no excuse that when you're really angry, you'll just work it out by training and you're yep. training. You don't want to talk to somebody and you'll hard. work yourself to exhaustion. Yep. And I, yeah, it's kind of funny because I do that with juggling, which is, Yep. Not really an exhaustion thing, yep. but tumbling definitely. I've been in moods where I've gone until I can't stand up. And, and is that dangerous? I mean, is that, it can is that be. when you get It's injured? not something you'd want to train every day. If you yeah. trained it every day, you absolutely would. But that was the challenge I gave to Flick and said, because I was going to do it because I didn't want to make anybody else do it. And I yeah. wanted to see if I could. And she was like, no, I'm training for Showcase because typical her, she's doing two other shows and doing her major graduating work at her own school. Oh, my God. At the time of rehearsing and performing left. <laughs> and so every single night, I think her record was 47 backflips Oh, and non-stop. it's exhausting even watching it. I just, what was I could feel the... I got feedback from people who wanted me to cut that because they desperately wanted her to stop. And yeah, that was like performance how I knew that, that I'd hit the thought, concept. I'd hit the emotional baits that I wanted to actually make the audience feel something. Yep. And for the person, not... You know, not be like, oh, God, you're being gross for the sake of being gross. I wanted something to, to witness exhaustion and anger. And I wanted someone to be watching someone just doing their own shit and being like, 
closing the world away from them. But that act still has plenty of people still caring for all those people. They're straightening up bottles and they fall. They're removing them after they leave. They're handing and taking bottles off the slack wire performer and making sure he's okay. And they leave anger alone because there's, you just can't do anything in that situation. Um, yeah, so that's why she does that. Wow. The moment of exhaustion that, that touched me the most was yours. Um, I, it's, I don't want to spoil anything for those who are going to watch it. Oh, the I, handstands. Oh, the handstand. Yeah, I mean, because I saw, I was, I, and it's my favorite thing to do in the world, I got to see the rehearsal or one yeah. of the final like, dress and rehearsals. Boy, that was a weird rehearsal. Oh, it was great. I, there's nothing I love more. I get so much more enthused about seeing the rehearsal than seeing the actual show. But you're, you're like, what do you call it? Like an endurance handstand? Or yeah. Well, there's a handstand competition in the show, and I play that for real. Yeah, so you can tell, dude. It's it. Like I, my hands were clenched into the seat. It was intense. Mm. Well, and but I mean, I as the director, I play it for real. Not as the individual, I have to because I'm taking my own notes. But yeah. uh, the idea is that everyone stays up for as long as they can. And there's people in the show who, you know, great as they are at circus, cannot do a handstand for beans. Yeah. And especially when you're doing them on a soft mat, not hard ground, it's much harder because yeah. you like the palms of your hand kind of sink in and unless See, you turn them out, you lose stability. Yep. And, you know, you lose strength much quicker on a, on a wrist that's hyperextended. Mm. Um, I love hearing this technical stuff. Yeah, we do a whole podcast that's pretty cool. Um, yeah, so everyone goes for as long as they can and they fall down, they take a beat and then they leave. Yep. And so there's always, and in this case it was Chris because he's an unstoppable handstand machine. <laughs> he always won and so I always, always worked as hard as I could to come second at least. Yeah. And I think on the last night, no, no, he still won. He, he cleaned me out every night. Yeah. And so it kind of, it's nice because even though there's a lot of emotional depth to that scene and it is quite personal to some mm. people, I wanted to make sure it was at least enough moments of levity for the cast that it's not harrowing for them. Mm-hmm. Like to to put that kind of sad weight on somebody rather than just go, this is your note, don't act. I just want you to do a handstand for as long as you can. Because a lot of the circus is great because circus is so in our pop culture that we know obvious metaphors for it. Yep. And so, you know, you run into the trap of using those glibly or like it being a bit cheap and obvious, but they're, mm-hmm. they're also a powerful language. You know, you jump through hoops is a task you do juggling the books it's all that kind of thing it's, it's yeah. absolutely in our language and so you can convey a lot by just saying do the physical without the act because the idea is that no one's acting and left except they're either just letting themselves enjoy it or letting themselves be sad if the moment calls for it and so I've, I like to think that the emotion's quite honest in the show and I always like to make sure that rather than just come down I fall down because I want to show that I actually can't hold up anymore yeah watching the tremors start in your shoulders and then you yeah. master them again and then watching them start at the hips and then you it's master also them and... improve my technique as well <laughs> <laughs> well that's spoken like a true professional i mean mm. from a performance uh perspective i mean in the audience that those that's those weaknesses are the bits that get you it's like the drops yeah and yeah. it's oh, it's interesting actually because we've got a really mixed review it's one of those reviews i don't know if you get them as a musician but mm. where it's a really positive review but every sentence is written that show in a way that shows you in a negative light oh, so it's no. unfortunately so almost it's unusable passive aggressive review yeah you can't find one line that's just unapologetically like nice or that's a very or a really clear critique either which is the hardest thing it's like he had a lot of valid notes because it was a rough brand new production and i think Mm -hmm. you know i've ironed out a lot of kinks just in the course of running it Um, but also he didn't read the program notes so i don't think he realized like he got the impression that the show even though he kind of knew that the end point wasn't shoehorned in he felt like it looked like it did which i think is an unfair 
criticism, but... I certainly didn't feel that way. Well, that's nice. But I can't blame him because, you know, obviously his response is valid. It's just Mm -hmm. it's the one that's written down, so it's the one I have to use, unfortunately. Uh, Which is a shame because I thought the structure would be more clear than that. Is it tough finding reviewers and and corralling them and getting them to your shows? Is it out of your control? Yes and no. Sometimes, say, Adelaide Fringe, you'll get reviewers to your show whether you know it or not. And there's some people in French festivals who absolutely, and I don't even know how this is possible, but they see every single show and they write a personal blog. And so some of the best reviews you'll ever get is Mm. the... You know, the one woman or one man's desire to see everything in the fringe and write about it. And that's wow. fascinating because they tend to be really immersed in culture and really up on it. And they tend to be pretty canny at what they're watching. Yeah. However, if you're in a fringe festival, well, it's all hands on deck at the local paper to get enough reviews of all the shows out. So the sports reporter might edit your show, like might yeah. watch your show. They might be really culturally up. Or someone's or, niece. Or, or might be yeah. into theatre or they might not be. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so and there's a lot of tell. that in stand-up comedy. You get a lot of people reviewing during the comedy festival Mm. and then there's always that wave afterwards or during of comedians writing uh, op-eds about how it's more damaging to review something if you have no idea. It is and it really is. It doesn't help because the thing is yeah there is an exchange and a reviewer is welcome to hate a show. They're absolutely allowed to but really the reason a reviewer is there is so they get given a free ticket so they can write about a show which helps their readership um and helps the reviewer because if it's good and if they liked it, mm-hmm. they'll, the expectation is that you write well enough that you can write a clear moment of praise that they can use as promotion and say, this paper said blah. Because really, if, if performers weren't getting that, why would they get a reviewer to a show? So a reviewer, so it's as important for a reviewer as a performer that their intent is reflected by the art. Yeah, I think the so. Fact that if they think it was a good show, it reads like it was a good show. That's right. Which unfortunately so, didn't happen with your review. Yeah, and uh, like, you know, he gave plenty of nice things to say as well, but it was just not usable, unfortunately. Mm. And we've gleaned some nice things out of it. And it, you know, obviously, don't want to disparage the reviewer because mm. they have a right to their opinion and the way they want to express that, and that's yep. the nature of getting a, like a critique. But it's just unfortunately phrased. So it's like, oh, well, yeah, but, oh, I can't use that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not a fan of this, but they did a great job, that kind of thing. Well, yeah. Well, that's oh, that's why I brought him up. That's right. Is Something he said that was actually very nice, but once again, you can't put this on a poster, was he said a good uh, performer knows um, how to own their mistakes and a great performer knows how to work with it. And this show is the work of great performers, which is one of the most amazing backhanded compliments I've ever heard. Oh, take the last third. There you've got it. Well, that's this right. This show is the work of great performers. <laughs> yeah, it's really nice. And it's, whatever. and it's a really nice thing to say about my cast because I think they are great performers. I think they're tremendous and they worked really hard and were very honest and open about what they did in the show. And it's got a rough and ready vibe on purpose, yeah. as well as being a bit new so I had it's a bit rougher than I'd like but it's right it's always going to be rough and it reflects your philosophy that if you that that drops are to be yeah drop is to be celebrated because I think an audience respects a drop more than we think they do Mm. and I think they're really you know it's really important when making a work like left or something that's so personal is that you're still doing your job at its heart left is a circus and it's full of circus and I make sure it's full of the best circus we can do because its job is to entertain people. And if I can sneak in a, like, also consider this, um, yeah. then great. Because that's why we'd use such a populist, low art medium like circus mm. and, as a conveyance of ideas. And that's yeah. the great bit of the writing is that it does sneak in. Oh, I, was, I was two thirds of the way through before I realized that you'd snuck the narrative on me. And by then it really got me. Oh, cool. Yeah. Oh, great. Because that, yeah, that was why I worked really hard to take the rubbish out of the show and make something that worked structurally as a piece of writing yep. as well as circus. And that comes back to what we were saying about scripts is like my scripts would be unintelligible to somebody <laughs> um, or illegible, I should say, yeah. to somebody reading it who was a script writer. Like it yep. 
garbage stage directions and ridiculous scenes and descriptions of things and how people should behave. And yeah, yeah. you know, I'm, I make great pains to say that if you've got an itchy bum, you should scratch it in the script. Yeah, great. Um, but not on things the like you need to take three steps to the left, turn this way and do a salt because I kind of leave that up to the performer because they're not yeah. stupid. So you're going to be touring with the show? If I can. It's, yeah. you know, it's a eight to 12 person cast, really. Like mm -hmm. I think I, the barest I could get it down to is six people. But the hardest part is how do you decide which of your cast doesn't come when they all do a great job yeah. and they all bring so much to the table? Could they're Because they're all from all works of life. As you said, some are full-time professionals and some haven't done much circus before. Mm. That's... Well, I think it's, I heard that somewhere. Yeah, well, that was the first cast. It's actually yep. boiled back down to strictly circus performers now because cool. they're available for the second season. Yeah, so and availability could make back. that calendar a bit easier, couldn't it? It does, and it also makes it really struggling too because, you know, some people are really great, but they have a more general skill set, and some people are linchpins in the cast and are very specific to have to replace. And they're the people who are in huge demand, right? Yes, and Elle Kirschbaum is one of those people. She's yep. not in the upcoming cast, and she's one like the one amongst the strongest actors in the show. Yep. as well as a really strong um, acrobalance base. So she's really good at putting people up and a flyer so she can stand on them as well. Yeah, so, so she's, she's a real enabler as well as a great performer. I mean, yeah. she's, the, she's the complete package. She's your perfect example of the complete package. That's right, Behind yeah. the scenes, she's a power to be reckoned with. Mm. I've never met anybody in any art form that is so natural at organizing and planning. And yeah, and I have no idea how efficient she is, but she gets a lot done. Because oh, she I'm seems amazed. to just kind of tap away at a computer for 20 hours and you kind of go, How m what, what are you really doing? And yeah, then right. suddenly the biggest festival you've ever seen comes out of it and you yeah. go, you come, she comes out with these really successful shows and suddenly learns how to market and produce and like yeah. you know, runs big things. Like she's a co-producer of Gluttony in Adelaide. Wow, now, I know. Which is, you know, the new kind of area that's actually giving the garden, I don't want for years, but yeah. it's giving them a run for their money. Like it's you can the see them getting worried the about fringe it. fringe fringe. Because fringe had... The Garden of Earthly Delights, which is like the fringe of fringe. But now yeah. that's mainstream enough that gluttony is Well, the now fringe you're the more likely to go there to ride on a carnival ride than you are to see a theatre show. Yeah, which feels strange. It does. And it feels, yeah, kind of creepy. And it's a shame because they, <laughs> they produce great stuff and they like the people who run it, Strut and Fret, are a circus production house and they make yeah. great shows. Um, but, you know, they are also a production house. So they, they get the money where they get it. Yeah, so I'd love to tour a show too somewhere like Gluttony mm -hmm. in the Fringe or get a regional tour or like, you know, pitch it to Arts Victoria for Cyber Paddock where they organise tours in there <laughs> or playing Australia, which is the like regional tours of the whole country. Yeah. But yeah, you've got to, you've got to be good at giving a pitch and you've got to have a product that looks good and that people will want and especially people in regional Australia will want because I think they'd like this show, but I've got to make sure they know that. Yeah, you've got to be able to convince them. Yeah. Is it syndicated? Is that the word? Have you found a place for it? outside of the original Gasworks production yet? Do you yes. know it's going to be put on somewhere? Yeah, no, it's definitely on at the Melbourne Spiegel tent at Circus Oz. So now right. I've just got to work it into a venue that's actually more perfect for the show but more of a nightmare for the show. Okay. Because I've always wanted this, the audience to feel really close. So the Spiegel tent is a place where I get to perform around everyone and they're right into it and the juggling yeah. will be above their heads and the circus will be two feet away because yeah, it's the immediacy of the danger of circus that's really important because mm. risk and trust are a big deal in relationships and so they're a big deal that you need to be able to get them across to somebody without forcing them to be a part of the trick. Like, yeah, you know, they're an audience. Yes, they have they a right will. to just watch. But they need to know that, you know, that three high comes down, it might come down on them. Yeah. I really just knock on wood that that doesn't actually happen. <laughs> my, my performers are good. That shouldn't happen. They're great. No, they're professionals. Yeah, yeah. You will not be in danger if you go and see the show at No, the that's Spiegel right. Tent. But just keep your hands ready. When is that? Uh, so that's 17th to the 28th of September. And yeah, that's, great. yeah, so it's just in Collingwood, which is cool, and in a Spiegel tent, which are beautiful venues. So Circus Oz just bought one a year or two ago, and now that they've got their new home in Collingwood, they've got a massive car park it's going to go in. So it's right next to Smith Street, which is yep. awesome. 
and they're offering me an absurdly good deal because they're trying to just make it happen. Yeah. And they're like, and all their other shows that they've got in there have been given very generous deals, and I hope they appreciate that because it's very generous, yeah. even for a fringe. It's amazing. Wow. Um, yeah, they're really, they're really nice and supportive like that, and they're trying really hard to be a big organisation that supports smaller ones. Great. Sometimes that comes with mistakes, but I think they're doing generally pretty mm -hmm. good. I've certainly been a beneficiary. They gave me a training space for three months for left. Wow. And they've done it again for this one, as well as Blue Around the Corner, which is Jez Davies runs a... He's an ex-Camberan. Yep. Who formed one of the earliest really big Melbourne circus companies with mm. my old trainers, Paul O'Keefe, Kylie O'Keefe and him. Yep. And they were amazing. Yeah, chronic. Just incredible circus. Like, that was... That was the goal when I was a kid. I saw them and so I wanted to be in Oz, but what I really wanted to do was form a company like they did. So if people want to find out more about this stuff, where do they go to find that out? Uh, well, we've got a website, www.longanswers.com, which I need to update the information on the start because it still says that the upcoming season I've left has come off the back of my successful tour of Circus Oz, which is a bit outdated now. If there's anything this podcast can do for people, it's... It Gives them a kick to update their website. I've had that from everybody who's been on the show. Yeah, totally. Every single person has mentioned that. It's amazing. Um, yep. Yeah, and then the Melbourne Fringe website, once it launches, I think August yep. 6th, uh, the program goes live and that kind of thing, and the the guide comes out soon. And that's and I pretty follow good. you on Facebook. Yeah, it's Tom Davis hyphen long answers to simple questions because right. I thought that I talk a lot, as you may have noticed, uh -huh. and I get distracted easily, so I give long answers to simple questions, and I thought that was a good name for my uh, company. And there's so much, there's so much stuff personally that I'd really like to cover with you that now we're sort of running out of time, so I can't, but I can't wait to have you back on the show. Oh, that'd be great. So, oh, yeah, I'd yeah. love to come back. I didn't um, know you did a, a more than once thing. Well, look, we're, we haven't been going for long, but we will. The dream is to go from twice a month to four times a month and four times a month would be like weekly, obviously I'll do the maths for everybody at home. Uh, that would allow me to really start getting in depth with some of these things. Yeah, that'd be cool. Yes, because I know that the big thing you wanted to ask me was the technical aspects of things like juggling and site yeah. swap notation and that sort of thing. And I didn't oh, yeah, know if we I have remember time. I took the note of like, just on your Facebook page, it says that you're deft in past juggling, tumbling, manipulation, equibl equibl equilibristics. Equilibristics, base for banqueen, pitching, push for teeter board and basic adagio up to basing hand to hand. Wow, I, I really oversell my skill words. set there. Um, yeah, right. So that's one of those things that yeah. you kind of write down so you can pitch it to people who know. And I try yeah. to be, yeah, pretty accurate because past juggling is my strength. I'm not as crazy amazing as the Europeans, but when they teach me a trick, I can understand it. So I'm yeah. at that level. Like, and I can, I can learn it even if it takes me an hour. Yeah. Whereas I can't, like a lot of skill sets people could show and demonstrate to me and I'd be just like, no, I'm not doing a back salt in a Russian bar. What are you, crazy? <laughs> um, although, actually, put me in lines. I would love to try that. That would be really fun. Terrifying, but fun. Well, you have to try something new in each left. Well, so that's right. Well, that's you, have you got a list? Well, really, like circus is so broad and so the amazing things people have developed over hundreds of years to just go, all right, hear me out. Why don't I lie in a kind of angular chair and you sit on my feet and we do a back salt, and that's Risley. Like, it's, as, as you described, it's one of my favourite things in the show that Ollie and Steph, my cast members, do. Yeah. It is just nuts, and I never tire of watching it. It is absolutely absurd that she can do two back salts in the air and land back on someone's feet with her bum. Yeah, right? Yeah. It's, it's... And Ollie can catch her. He can watch that happen and just, boom, and it's totally accurate, and it's amazing. 
And seeing their relationship play out that way, seeing the yeah. trust that they have and seeing the, the really subtle physical communication that mm. comes as they do their thing. It's just yeah, absolutely. Really Sometimes it's a wink or an eyebrow or a tap or, and you know, if something's yeah. going wrong, it'll be an expression. And they do the same act as Chris, who's another cast member. He has a mm -hmm. partner who's not in the show, unfortunately, because of scheduling and all the busy stuff she does. But yeah. they're both uh, Risley performers and those two are also tremendous. It's... Mm. Like, you know, Ollie and Steph are very much chasing their heels, but they are the best I've ever seen. Just uh, feet to feet are amazing. Feet to feet. Mm. So uh, speaking of plugs, um, yeah. is there anybody else, is there anything else coming up that you reckon people should try and get to? Because I know um, that the circus space in Melbourne is busy and fascinating yeah, and crazy. it is busy. I'm, there's going to be lots of shows in the Fringe, undoubtedly. There's a whole season at Gasworks. Um, oh, actually, if you're going to watch anything, Pants Down Circus, doing rock. Yeah. Um, that's four Nike graduates who are all from other circus and theatre schools before they got to Nike and have all worked together. And they are just ridiculous. It's, it's the polar opposite of my kind of circus, but with the exact same intent behind it. So... Their aim is to just be fun, to be the circus you remember as a kid mm -hmm. without any nonsense and without any ridiculous, like, wank, I guess. Yep. Um, and it, they're just so good at what they do. And there's so there's four of them and they do, like, 12 acts and they're all good. They're all at a really high level and they're fun and funny and, yeah, amazing. Like, all four of them are clowns to some degree. Like, two men, two women, they're both, like, both sets of them work together and, like, with each other and they change it up. The duo Trapeze is... The most fascinating thing I've ever seen. It like genuinely scares me and excites me, which aerials have long stopped doing. Great. Well, it was yeah. a pleasure working with you here today. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, heaps, James. Uh, thanks and for thanks for having support. me over. This is really nice to talk, especially in your lovely garden. Yeah, first time we tried it outside, so it'll be very interesting to see how Yeah, I'm looking forward to hearing all the bird noises. Well, thanks for coming on the show, and I can't wait to have you. Great. That's the show. Thanks so much for tuning in. Uh, next time we'll talk to Chris Pickering, who took his songwriting to Tennessee after finding early success here in Australia as a boat person. So check out our Facebook page for links to the live sets, to talk to our guests, and of course to listen to our other shows. Uh, now in the spirit of Jackie Chan, time for some outtakes. Normally I come up with a nice intro for this, but I've been behind the eight ball all morning. I was only setting up while you were sitting here. So I'll say something like... Yeah, it's like Q&A, only yeah. way, way better and less painful. And yeah, and, and less every week just going, oh, why oh. is that jackass on? Yeah, right? Mm. All those jackasses. I'm good at getting distracted to say, to warn you. Awesome, and being having knowing the... I was talking to him in this white, blank room, just show, closed doors, me and my elected representative. Quick bit of sophistry there. Yep. Do you know, you know that song, What the Fox Say? Yeah. Do you know what the fox actually says? It shrieks like a woman screaming. Oh, it says all sorts of stuff, doesn't it? Doesn't oh. it go... Uh, oh, I see. No, I mean life. in real oh. life. Oh, I know, right? I was actually really proud of myself. I sat there smugly hoping you'd notice. It's not a question. Quit airing your knowledge. Get to the point. Like, I know you're smart. Just answer. ask the question. But we've unfortunately fallen out of touch. I think we're friends on Facebook. I should see how he is. Yeah, if you're quoting Ulysses, you, you've gone too long. And that could be a real coming of age. Like adulthood, here's your parrot cigar and pornography.